On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, a big win for Australian Manuka honey producers. All of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-add products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past. Uh, The US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time. And agritourism in Tasmania bouncing back. Well, we've had a remarkable comeback from uh, the COVID years and a very significant component of that tourism response has been from China's Australians um, and increasingly uh, Australians from whose origins go to South Asia, um, India and what have you. Yes, plenty of farm visits happening across the state. We'll take you to one of those farms later in the program and in just a moment a significant decision on Manuka honey from New Zealand which will be pleasing to Australian Manuka producers. G'day, Tony. Back with you on this Monday, 23rd day of January already. Where has the year gone? Also coming up today, we'll check the wool markets and take a closer look at the relationship between Australian beef and China. Plus, of course, a check on the weather at the halfway stage of the show. You too can be part of the country. Are year number 78 for the program. Stay in touch via the text line 0438 932 that number. 0438922936. Well, first up today, Australian Manuka honey producers have scored a significant win against a group of New Zealand producers who want exclusive use of the word Manuka. The New Zealand-based Manuka Honey Appalachian Society withdrew from appeals it launched in the UK and also Europe after losing trademark cases to Australia. The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender told Clint Jasper it means Australian producers now are free to sell Manuka honey in those markets. Well, number one, it's the uh, right decision on their behalf and they should have done it a long time ago uh, and saved themselves a lot of money and pain. But it means to our industry that, you know, the, the industry from our perspective is now significantly de-risked. We were being asked by um, partners and distributors around the world you know, what's the situation with New Zealand? And obviously we'll be now sharing this outcome with the world through all of our members and channels. Uh, so it's a very, very significant uh, outcome for us. And we wish we hadn't had to go through it, but that's what happened. Can you update at all on the other matters that are happening around the world? Well, the only other one that was alive was, was with Europe. They've also... Um, stopped uh, pursuing the trademark name in Europe. And the only outstanding one now is uh, the IPO office in New Zealand, which we're waiting for a decision on. Um, You know, and hopefully it's been a year now, so hopefully there'll be a decision coming out of there soon. And um, we hope it's the right decision. You know, obviously for us, it's a one-way trade with New Zealand. We can't sell any honey to New Zealand. Uh, but they sell an awful lot of honey over here. So we hope it's the right decision, but it's not a significant market for us. And are you hoping what's taken place in the UK and EU, they are different jurisdictions, but you know, if the weight of your argument has carried in those uh, courts that it might uh, influence New Zealand's actions in any other future disputes it might have decided to take against Australia and other countries? 
Oh, they, they are independent jurisdictions, so we 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 don't know for sure if um, you know these decisions in the UK and Europe will have any bearing at all on uh, on what New Zealand uh, does. Uh, we just hope it's a rational conversation. Obviously, we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years, and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. Manuka's always been an extremely valuable product, both domestically and in export markets, especially around uh, southeastern and eastern Asia. Can you give us an idea of the size of this market? Yeah, Clint, it's very hard to um, put a dollar number on it, but you know the forecast for the general market for Manuka honey is about 1.2 billion by 2027. Now, when you break that down or try to break it down into things like medical products or uh, prebiotics or um, creams, eczema, acne, or other throat lozenges, uh, throat sprays, things like that, it's very difficult to get a, an exact handle on the, the number. But um, certainly all of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-add products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. Um, and while Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past, uh, the US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time. When we last spoke, Paul, just before the hearing that was going to take place before the New Zealand uh, Intellectual Property Office, you were calling on more support from the federal government. I think at the time you weren't receiving much at all. Has the government come through and supported the industry more in the intervening years? Yeah, it's, it's you know, while we've had a change in government, we've uh, re-engaged with the new government and we've had ongoing support specifically for the funding from the Attorney General's office, which has been very helpful, and obviously with uh, trade and agriculture uh, on a watching brief with us as well. So um, they have been more engaged, and um, obviously this outcome is, is, is good for Australia. That's Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender speaking there with Clint Jasper about New Zealand withdrawing its appeal launched in Europe and the UK about the use of the name Manuka. Haven't heard the end of it yet, so I'm sure we'll hear more about that story, but that's uh, good news for Australian Manuka producers. There's quite a few in Tasmania as well with the uh, Manuka trees on the west coast. Well, continuing with bees and Victorian beekeepers who've had hives stuck in New South Wales are now able to bring them home. The border's been closed since varroa mite was detected at the port of Newcastle in June last year. Deputy Chief Plant Health Officer with Agriculture Victoria, Stephen Dibley, says permits and testing are still required before any hives are moved. From today, um, beekeepers who have registered hives with Victoria are able to move um, from the New South Wales Blue Zone, which is any area further than 25 kilometres away from a known varroa uh, detection, and they can move their hives back into Victoria under permit, so they can apply for the permit to do that movement. This is a pretty significant move. Uh, the beekeepers in Victoria have been telling us that the floral resources are dwindling in some parts of New South Wales, so they're pretty keen to come back to Victoria. How confident are you that there is no varroa mite in that blue zone? It's been a, a national uh, consideration, so not just us, but everyone else around the country looking at the, the work that New South Wales has done uh, and they've made that consideration to see that varroa, it is varroa-free in there. So we've got a, a good amount of confidence. New South Wales has done a lot of looking at hives 
Ashman. So we are, are highly confident that there is no Barara in that blue zone. There will be beekeepers with hives in New South Wales that aren't Victorian registered. Will they be allowed into the state as well? They will be, just not 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 as, as of today. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll also be opening it up to um, beekeepers whose hives are not registered in Victoria. Uh, so hopefully by the end of February, um, we'll be able to move uh, those beekeepers into Victoria as well. Is it a case of just loading the bees onto the truck and driving across the border, or are there still permits and um, other requirements that these beekeepers need to be aware of? Uh, definitely there are there are uh, requirements. So yeah, all beekeepers who move into Victoria will require a permit, um, which was you will be open for applications now for the Victorian registered beekeepers. Coming with that permit will be a, an increased amount of, um, essentially we're compared to the standard, uh, there'll be a need to do surveillance as per the current blue zone, uh, New South Wales blue zone. So every 16 weeks, uh, checking their hives and there'll be increased um, traceability, so recording all movements of the hives uh, back in Victoria. A third of the things that we eat require pollination. There have been concerns since the varroa mite detection was found in New South Wales that you know there may not be enough bees in Victoria to pollinate certain crops. Are you feeling that um, some of those pressures are, are, are easing now that more bees are going to be allowed back into Victoria? Absolutely. That's been a big focus of us at Across Victoria, making sure that we can get the bees back to uh, do the pollination requirements. So this is the first step in, in really opening it up and, and ensuring that all our, all our uh, pollination-dependent industries will have access to healthy um, and enough hives uh, to do the pollination come spring. Do you have a rough idea of how many Victorian registered hives have been stuck in New South Wales? Uh, it's been hard to get a, a feel for. Um, it's multiple thousands of hives up there. We're not quite sure exactly how many. Do you envisage that the beekeepers will want to bring those hives back within the next few weeks or will some of them choose to stay up there a bit longer? What What are you hearing from beekeepers? Uh, our understanding is it'll be a bit of a mix. There's, there's several beekeepers who are really keen to get back and, and move back as soon as they can. Um, but it'll depend on, on what sort of contracts and, and what their, their programs are. Some some may well want to stay in, in New South Wales or in other states for a bit longer. Uh, but we do expect to have a bit of a, a significant amount of movement occurring uh, in the coming weeks. That's the Deputy Chief Plant Health Officer with Agriculture, Victoria, Stephen Dibley, talking to Kelly Hollingworth about the movement of beehives from New South Wales back into Victoria, permitted from today. But in Tasmania, honeycomb, used apiary equipment, including bee suits and gloves and packaged bees, including queens, may not be imported into Tasmania as the varroa mite operation continues. Well, coming up, beef producers looking closely at the current relationship with China and a visit to a popular northeast flower farm. Look who's returning in 2023. Are you ready? G'day, it's Leon Compton. Back on air next Monday. Where are we at? Talking about the stories that matter to you. In terms of carbon emissions, inputs versus outputs. Getting reaction. Tasmanians had a gutful. And advice from hygiene. Please take a cold shower. To fishing. Croft, where are the fish biting this weekend? Leon Compton, back for morning. It's ready, it's waiting. Monday, 30th of January from 8.30. Can't miss it, come on down. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
Don't forget our text line number 0438922936. We'll uh, check the weather conditions, latest weather conditions, about uh, 15 minutes from now. Well, Chinese trade issues have dominated headlines for years and from time to time, so has the issue of Chinese foreign ownership in Australia. But what is China's long game when it comes to agriculture? Is it trying to dominate world markets or just feed its own people? One man who knows the beef industry, both in Australia and in China, is Professor Ben Lyon, Associate Professor from the University of Southern Queensland. He grew up on a beef property and has spent 18 years living and working in China. Speaking fluent Mandarin, he told David Clawton in English, a lot of China's agricultural policy is about reassessing its place in the world. This is a very important narrative for the Chinese Communist Party, um, and particularly its narrative back to its people is not only protecting its people, but also the status of the Chinese nation in the in the eyes of the world. And having a bigger say in the world affairs, they they probably feel that they've they've matured, particularly in the last twenty years, on a technology and um, individual wealth front. Um, so they're spreading their wings, but also. Just strategically, China, um, in terms of feeding and maintaining lifestyle and its increasing um, and improving middle class, it needs more resources, whether it's food, infrastructure, steel, iron ore and energy. So to, to maintain that level of lifestyle that it's starting to create, and we've seen the biggest in human history, the biggest movement out of poverty, not just recent human history, but ever. So to maintain that momentum of economic growth, it needs resources. And that's where China's been flexing that strategic muscle. And that's where Australia has been a bit of a... Um, that saying, you know, they, they have a Chinese saying, they have an aphorism for everything, but, you know, you, you kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Australia has been a little bit of a chicken in the last few years. And we've stood up quite well, to be honest, but unfortunately for a lot of our um, listeners, you know, a, a few beef processors, um, some of our coal exporters and others, and particularly our wine industry have been the victim of that, um, that, that Chinese strategy. So China does have like a centralised planning process, don't they? They have like a central document that comes out. Agriculture is a big part of that. And their primary concern, as far as my reading of that document, is about feeding their own people. Would, would that be right? Yeah, so China's always been about, um, remember that, you know, and it could be decades and hundreds of years of sort of chaos before the rise of the Communist Party in 1949. Um, That communist revolution was very different to Russia's and that was surrounding the cities by the countryside. So it was a rural-based communist revolution. China at that stage was 85% rural. It's now less than 50% in terms of its rural population. But it's still a very important part of their power base. And agriculture and maintaining the viability of their agriculture sector and food supply and food security is a very big issue in the last 50 years or more in Chinese history. And in terms of beef, they are a very big producer of of beef now, aren't they? But they've had trouble maintaining that. We've studied the beef Chinese beef industry since the 1990s to get an understanding of their domestic production. Their domestic production is not at a scale. It's much more at a smaller household level. It's very challenged by logistics and also processing. Um, both sheep and meat are, are widely consumed in China, but pork is the mainstay. More recent developments have seen things like the African swine flu challenge that pork sector or be a threat to pork sector, um, but also more affluent sort of lifestyles, particularly in Tier 1 and Tier 2 cities, have seen increased incomes look at Australian and other um, sorts of, of beef as a luxury product eating out in restaurants, so food and beverage like my Work colleagues who were typically sort of in their early 30s, females and professionals in Shanghai, love going and spending up to $100 each on an Australian steak at a premium restaurant. And that 
was not happening in the early 2000s, but in the last 10 years, it's been an increasing trend. So we've benefited from that, and that's where that um, affluent Chinese consumer has really influenced and become our biggest destination of Australian premium beef. Well, we saw an example recently of a Chinese company in Australia buying Wagyu heifers, paying the most, the, the biggest price ever for Wagyu heifers, $400,000, I think it was. Is that about them getting the genetics back to China so they can improve their herd? Yeah, it's very much so. That's uh, that's a, it's always about producing their own and having that supply chain uh, or sovereign capability. Um, the the real facts are that China is very limited in how it can um, produce a premium quality, either whether it be a dairy product or even a wine product, based on climate availability of the right land. Um, they can. They're very big producers of beef um, and other ag products because of their domestic market, but there is a limit to that capacity on the premium end. Um, but yes, you will. That that affluent Chinese consumer will do, is the is the driver of that four hundred thousand dollar wagyu heifer. And if you look at their dairy industry, they've been importing Australian dairy heifers for decades now, and genetics to go with it. And now they have some massive milk production facilities on a a much bigger scale than anything Australia could do. Do you think that with their $2 trillion that they're investing into agriculture to improve their infrastructure, they might be looking to do the same thing in beef? Well, China's sort of had a strategy for the last 10 or 15 years to invest not just domestically but in food and agri-supply chains globally. If, If Brazil could produce sugar at a more efficient rate, then we'll invest, Chinese will invest in, say, a harbour or the infrastructure and in the farming to secure that supply of sugar if it was more efficient than they could do it at China. There's been challenges around, you know, you say that China, we all love a big number when it comes to China, and my favourite was when a Ministry of Agriculture friend said that they wake up every morning as agricultural bureaucrats and think about the 70 hectare mouth they had to feed, which is the size of the Chinese, combined of the Chinese population's mouths. Um, Almost one and a half billion people. Yeah, that's right. But the I I think it there'll always be challenges with you know and dairy has had stopped had, had many false starts. They've they've invested a lot at a local level and built fantastic dairies but forgot that they had to feed them, so they had to import hay and other feed stuff. So there is these central planning does have these challenges. That has often unfortunately has been the case and that disrupts global markets. Um I think with in regards to beef and where we're at at the moment, we've done a very good job with interacting and developing our brand, our brand around particularly being freshness, safety and high quality um, across a range of products that served us well. China hasn't been able to crack that on the on the high-end scale yet. There is a, still a local de- distrust in their own product and own systems. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that's changed or, changed or not um, under the pandemic. Um, there was, for example, in dairy, in the in infant formula, there was a lot of, because of infant formula fraud and, and contamination back in early 2008. They have worked really hard to get that brand recognition and security back around Chinese product food safety, but it's a long way to go. And so, you know, the biggest questions now in terms of short-term trade, uh, it's about getting those import permits renewed for the the four Australian beef uh, exporters. And, of course, you know, wine you've mentioned. So um, what do you think the prospects are around that? Look, it's a, it's a work in progress. We've had these bannings before and they've been sporadic. 
Um, this time they've been a little bit long term for the companies um, in question and particularly in recent years. But the industry, like I said, has worked well and I think the indications of Penny Wong's that recent visit, um, I think the, you know, there's still a ways to go. Um, but these things have been happening for a long time, the last sort of 30 decades since China opened um, to foreign imports and uh, it's just something we've learned to work with. It's not ideal. So you don't think it's centrally motivated? Do you think it, there's just something going on in the it's, smallest? It's hour? a local interpretation of a central motive of the cent of Beijing's wishes of what President Xi would like to see. So it's not coordinated centrally per se. Um, so you have to elevate it to the um, to back to Beijing via the right diplomatic channels and work it through. These are phytosanitary or process-driven um, things. They just happen to be looking out for Australian beef closely. But a lot of all of our imports or all food imports, particularly run the, the gauntlet of Chinese customs, I'm afraid. So is there anything to fear in terms of that technology transfer or that direct you know, exporting of product from Chinese-owned properties in Australia to China? Are we being cut out somehow? Are we being used? Well, I think value-adding agriculture and, and extracting the strongest value or the higher value um, is always a challenge in any market, export market. We export 70% of what we produce in agriculture. Um, getting away from being dig and deliver is a big cultural thing for us as Australians. I think that on your question around the Chinese and the xenophobic thing, yeah, we do tend to overreact to some of those things, but I'd also be wary. There are some very strong links in some of these Chinese investments back to the central government, and they are under a strong coercion um, potential from Beijing. So I think it is does pay to be wary with Chinese investment, particularly in some strategic Assets, but we do that with all foreign investment. Our foreign investment review board is the protocols are quite strong, whether it's China or any nation. So I think if we just treat them as we treat every other nation, we will be fine. There's no, we're not targeting China in any way. And I think that's a very pragmatic and mature outcome. Mm. I mean, our protocols are quite strong. We've toughened up the, the FERB stuff, but Australians can't buy land in China. And <laughs> there was a lot of angst about Australia demanding that Chinese be tested for COVID when they came here, but but Australians have to be tested before they go into China. It's it's you know the policies in reverse are far stronger than our own. Yeah, that's that's part of the uh, part of the diplomatic tussle, I suppose. I mean, there's a lot been a lot of irrational Chinese sort of edicts. If you look at the live cattle market back ten you know, recent times, the blue tongue line that goes from sort of diagonally across Australia from north to to the south. Um, we don't have blue tongue. Um, we have the vector, but um, that's... And in the wool industry, you know, we lengthen strength test our wool objectively. In China, they do it with a steel ruler. So there's always these conflicts around that thing and ways of doing things differently. It's, uh, it is a challenge. That's Professor Ben Lyons speaking to David Clawton about China's ag policy, in particular beef production. The professor grew up on a beef property and has spent almost two decades living and working in China. Talking about wool there too, we'll have uh, details of uh, the latest wool markets for you coming up and uh, predictions for this week, which will be a shorter week for wool sales. More details after the weather. Many agribusinesses in Tasmania have been enjoying the gradual return of tourism to their businesses since pandemic restrictions were lifted. Chinese visitors in particular were drawn to the Bridestow Lavender Farm after their president visited Tasmania and was gifted something special from the farm. Bridestow Estate has been loved by tourists from Asia and members of the Asian-Australian community for many years, including this visitor. Uh, because I always love lavender and I always use lavender at home and this farm is the biggest in Australia, so why not? I want to go. <laughs> yes. 
And um, a lot of people from Asia love to come to this uh, lavender farm. It seems like it's a big trend. Do you know why that is? Uh, because they love to take photos and there's a, you know, Instagram, TikToks and also I think lavender is a good oil, you know, so good, good vibe, so why not? Really a very strong part of our promotional campaign is to make it a place that, that people want to visit and want to transmit that image of that visit um, to their friends and uh, relatives elsewhere. Well, we've had a remarkable uh, comeback from uh, the COVID years and a very significant component of that response, uh, tourism response, has been from China's Australians um, and increasingly uh, Australians from whose origins go to South Asia, um, India and what have you. So we've had a buoyant tourist uh, response and that's really not only surprised us but absolutely delighted us. It's been great. Um, and so someone pretty significant visited Tasmania quite a few years ago, Xi Jinping, and he sort of in, instilled this connection to lavender, would you say? Well, it gave a legitimacy, I suppose, to Tasmania as a tourism destination. I mean, it was well on the way prior to Xi Jinping's uh, visit, but it certainly put the seal of approval um, on Tasmania as a tourism destination. And uh, the Chinese response, particularly to tourism in Tasmania, has been seriously strong. I mean, it, it sort of started with a few businesses such as ourselves, um, but gathered real momentum and spread right across Tasmania from 2010 onwards, basically. And what was it about that visit that um, caused a, big, a greater influx to your farm? Well, we have a very famous object called Bobby the Bear, um, and he was a personality long before Xi Jinping introduced him, or he was introduced to Xi Jinping, but uh, it certainly, as I said, gave a legitimacy to the, the product, and uh, the demand for the beer remains um, uh, less hysterical than perhaps historically, but uh, certainly is very strong. Is that the same Bobby the Bear that's standing about two metres tall in the gift shop? Yeah, that is true. The, the, the big one came later. Um, that was Big Bobby. But uh, the, the image was created in 2009 um, and uh, gathered momentum into 2014. Xi Jinping's uh, visit in 2016 um, probably cemented the credibility of the, of, of the bear. But, uh, um, you know, it's been a, a really a roller coaster ride with, uh, with China and, and this farm. But uh, the roller coaster is very much on the upside now. Um, Post-COVID, we're expecting a really strong response. And it's been a late season, you're saying, and, and the lavender has been a little bit stunted in terms of its growth. Do you think you've overcome those challenges or is there more to do? Well, we, we've had a very prolonged flowering season this year, which is great for tourism. So the tourists are delighted. Um, and agriculturally, we're producing quality product, um, albeit in, in between showers, um, we're producing quality products. So we're pretty optimistic about the outcome. It's just taking longer to get there. We're lucky because it's still incredibly beautiful around here. We're immersed in the fields of purple. Do you send your lavender anywhere outside of Tassie, Australia, more broadly? Well, our lavender historically um, has gone to Europe. Um, it changed under our direction uh, into Asia. Um, we've had a very strong bond with Asia and that's been quite a deliberate strategy. Um, Japan, um, pre-COVID, was our strongest uh, uh, demand base and uh, 
we will be visiting Japan in May um, to re-stimulate the demand which fell away during COVID. So it's been interesting, um, as I said, uh, roller coaster ride. Uh, but we do see Japan still as our principal export market, with China now as a, as, as a second market. Robert Ravens, owner of Bridgestone Lavender Estate at Nabolo in northern Tasmania, talking there to Madeleine Rajan. Coming up on the Country Hour, a check on the wool markets. Uh, also a look at Shearer numbers and a Northwest Country music artist and the family connections to Tamworth, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. Safety experts say cyberbullying reports are reaching concerning levels with a number of incidents jumping by almost 70% in a year. The eSafety Commissioner is investigating about 1,700 complaints made in the last 12 months. The Commission says the reports range from cruel or humiliating language through to threats of violence. Indigenous leader Kayla Carledge says she'd prefer to see people at marches and rallies rather than voicing their opposition by showing up to work on Australia Day. A growing number of companies are now offering their employees the option to work on Australia Day and take a day of leave on another day. A large shark has been sighted in waters off Tasmania's east coast. Police say they've received reports of a shark swimming close to shore near the blowhole at Burgess Street, Bishanoe. And the federal government will hold a meeting with online dating companies this week saying there are unacceptable levels of abuse and harassment on dating apps. Research by the Australian Institute of Criminology shows three quarters of online daters had been victims of some sort of sexual violence in the past five years. Discussions will focus on what the industry is doing to prevent their services being exploited by perpetrators and how safeguards can be improved. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather with Belinda House from the Bureau. Belinda, some showers and storms about. Yeah, that's right. We're already seeing a reasonable amount of shower activity across the, well, the north and then to the northeast through the uh, Midlands and down through the far southwest of the state. So we are going to see those uh, showers pop up really anywhere across the state during the afternoon and early parts of the evening. Also uh, waiting to, to watch the development of uh, thunderstorms during the afternoon as well. So it's likely we will see some thunderstorms uh, pop up with those showers today. So rainfall we've had uh, so far in, the, in some showers and storms that moved through the uh, northeast yesterday. I'm seeing some quite high rainfall totals in the 24 hours to 9am. Lilydale picked up 50, 50 millimetres <laughs> there and Unamara 27 and Mount Barrow 24. So it's just sort of some uh, higher rainfall totals through the northeast but generally uh, most places got something in the gauge uh, yesterday. But look, since 9 o'clock this morning, only lighter fall so far. Um, there's a Five millimetres through the uh, through the, uh, the the south of the state, and Ledgerwood's had about three millimetres so far. So we will see those uh, showers continue to develop for us today. Look, isolated falls of you know two to ten millimetres, that sort of range. But look, if you get happen to just be under a heavier shower, you could see you know that twenty or thirty millimetres isn't out of the question if you're uh, under a particularly heavy shower or storm this afternoon. Now tomorrow looks to be a relatively similar day. We'll start out with some just some showers about the north of the state but they're going to pop up uh, statewide again tomorrow afternoon and the risk of uh, some thunderstorms again during the afternoon and early evening for Tuesday as well. Look, then on Wednesday, we're going to see uh, winds uh, freshen from the northwest with showers becoming more con- 
concentrated about the northwest and far south of the state with mainly fine conditions elsewhere. Then on Thursday, we're looking at a cooler change pushing across the southern half of the state primarily. So we're going to see some showers about the west, far south and up into the northeast, but those showers are expected to ease during the afternoon with uh, generally fine conditions elsewhere. So fresh northwest to westerly winds initially, but turning around west to southwesterly during the morning and southeast about the east coast in the afternoon and evening. And we will see some cooler conditions across the south on Thursday. Then on Friday, not too much around. Just a chance for something light about the northwest and the northeast with a generally a settled weather elsewhere across the state on Friday. Okay, any warnings? Look, we don't have uh, any warnings out at present for today or tomorrow. Uh, for the coastal waters today, we're looking generally east to northeast, east to northeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, although southwest to southeasterly, 5 to 15 about the west and the southwest, so a little bit more of a sea breeze influence over on the west coast. So the swell, Cape Sorrell's currently sitting around uh, one and a half metres, a maximum height of two and a half metres, and that's coming in from the southwest. For Mariah Island, sitting uh, just a little above a metre, maximum height uh, just a bit below two metres, and that's coming in from the south-southwest. So the, the swell's set to continue pretty much as is for the remainder of the day, western and southern coasts southwesterly one to two metres and north, across the northern water the confused swell below half a metre and through the east primarily a southerly swell at round one metre but tending southwesterly one to two metres offshore in the south. Okay and those thunderstorms you mentioned we're expecting later in the day any particular area that they'll be concentrated on? area, we couldn't really define a risk area. I think the chances are pretty much anywhere across the state. We're already seeing uh, seeing some good shower activity through the, the north and, and the Midlands, so we'll continue to watch those showers as the afternoon rolls on. Beauty. Thank you, Belinda. Thank you. Cheers, Belinda House from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the country hour. We'll talk about uh, wool, wool auctions and how things are travelling in just a moment. Hello, you've called Joel Reinberger. Right now, I'm hibernating like a fat bear, but I'll be back at work soon. And when I do, I'm presenting the afternoon show. Every weekday, I'll bring you a boatload of unexpected joy, untold tales, fascinating characters, and your stories too. I definitely want to hear from you. Afternoons with me, Joel Reinberger, this afternoon from 1.30. Tune in at ABC Radio Hobart, on air, on DAB+, and on the Listen app. Ignore the beep. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Yeah, you got a message on uh, our text line, 0438922936, says, Hello, Tony, W-E-L-C. Mm. I think uh, you must have been distracted and uh, had to do something else. <laughs> I'm feeling it's sort of welcome, welcome back. Thank you very much for our text there and uh, hope you're having a wonderful day. Uh, wool prices have remained in positive territory for the start of the new calendar year and with some large volumes of weather affected wool from previously flooded areas hitting auctions, Tasmanian wool has been an attractive option to buyers. Here's George Nichols from Nutrien to unpack the market. Well, the, the first week, uh, the first sale rostered back for January was pretty strong. Uh, we saw some reasonable improvements over the week and then we started strong again last week, which was nice. The indicator levelled out towards the end of the week. We saw an $0.08 cent rise uh, by the end of the week um, and, and part of the key was, was buyers looking for quality wool 
quality wools. There's a lot of over length and, and water affected wools, you know, cots and things like that. So um, it was positive to see the Tassie wool selling, selling well as well. So only a slight rise, but a lot of positivity around, especially the good Tasmanian types of wool. And in the mediums, uh, has there been, was there much movement there in the, the sort of 2022s, 23 micron wool? Well, there was towards the end of the week, those, those indicators were, were largely unchanged. There were some slight rises early in the week, sort of six and seven cents, but they, they sort of plateaued off towards, um, towards Thursday. And a lot of that's to do with long staple merino wool and, you know, other problems, colours and cots. It's sort of, it's, it's, it's all due to this wet, um, spring and, and summer period from the mainland where we just have water-affected wools and delayed shearings. Um, and it's it's seeing a, a pretty heavy discount for those sort of types just because there's so much of it in the market and, and the, guy, the, the buyers are looking for that really quality stuff, which luckily in Tassie is what we produce. So who's, um, who's buying at the moment? Oh, well, as to be expected, um, you know, there's a fair bit of wool coming from Chinese buyers, whether they're local Australian um, exporters um, sending it to China or the Chinese themselves. So tech wool and uh, those sort of guys uh, are buying and, and what we're seeing is is those guys sort of stepping back into the market. They, they were driving before Christmas and now obviously um, into January and into the new year we've seen, seen those guys operating again a, a lot stronger and, and driving competition, which is great. Now, usually there is a bit of a lull in buying activity during um, the Chinese New Year period because in China there's, you know, there's quite a bit of celebrations going on and people travel and that sort of thing. But uh, even with uh, these COVID restrictions easing, do you think that's going to be the, the same case this, this season? We'll, we'll probably see it, probably not quite as uh, as predominant as it has been in the other years that these these guys are coming back into the market and and operating and, and, and they're seeing the opportunity and I think I think we should expect a little bit but but I don't I don't think it's going to probably be as pronounced this year okay. um, yeah, and it's nice to see it's where we're lucky in Tassie as I said before with these quality wolves we're going to see those guys seeking it out because they need more of it now which is good and you've been doing a bit of driving around uh, what what are the um, farms properties looking like I notice it's starting to dry off now in some parts of Tassie um, yeah, is, how's the wool yeah. looking <laughs> oh the wool's looking great I mean we didn't have the volume we did have it it was it was wetter but but we certainly didn't have the volume and, and Tassie wools do breathe a lot better they're used to it being a, a little bit wetter and a little bit cooler so the wool quality seems to be fine coming through, but what we do have in the state, as everyone's seen, is just this huge volume of, of grass from the spring growth. So there's there's going to be a lot less grain feeding this summer and, and probably the opportunity to have people have probably got their ewes especially are going to be a, in, in a lot better nick. So um, from a livestock perspective, that is good, and we're finally seeing some good old proper tassy summer, which we were all looking for before Christmas, wondering if we were ever going to get it. And, <laughs> We're seeing the grass dry out and it gives, gives the opportunity for, for farmers to, to get their paddocks down and get, get that dry feed down and get a bit of you know, sunlight and a bit of heat, get some worm burden off, which is good for the sheep. And, and um, yeah, it's ge- general positivity, really. And, and I think um, as much as everyone loves the rain, it's, it's nice when we get a good summer and it finally starts to dry out. <laughs> it sure is. And just finally, um, looking at the, the market uh, for this week, uh, what sort of um, volumes of wool are expected to hit the, the auction floors? 
Uh, so, so this week, so we've actually, because of the Australia Day holiday on Thursday, um, we've got about 46,000 bales rostered this week. Um, so it's going to be a pretty action-packed day for the guys in Melbourne um, Tuesday and Wednesday. So we're sort of seeing, uh, seeing that level, you know, obviously reduced with two days, but it's going to be uh, not that dissimilar from last week. So they, they, they'll, be, they'll be very, very busy over there on the two days. Um, and, and that'll give us an indication of, of where we're at. Um, I, I think we've seen, we're seeing a little bit of a plateau, as you said, with the Chinese New Year. And then obviously leading into the, the Tassie feature sale that's um, on February the 17th um, in Melbourne. You know, hopefully with those sort of better quality, more of those better quality wools, we'll, we'll hopefully see a little bit of a rise into them. But yeah, that's what we're looking at this week. It's George Nichols, new head of Nutrients Wool Division in Tasmania, chatting to Larissa Smith about the early wool auctions for the new year, the year of the rabbit, actually. Well, talking about uh, wool, while there's a shearer shortage on at the moment, indications are there will be more than enough new recruits to pick up the slack in years to come. Interest in becoming a shearer or wool handler is stronger now than it's been in years, with retention rates in the industry also improving. Executive Officer of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia, Shearer Wool Handling Training, Glenn Haynes, says they've had to put on extra training classes to keep up with the demand. Been absolutely phenomenal, actually. Like I think um, a lot of people had a bit of a struggle through COVID, but it was a bit of a silver lining for us. I mean, we got to put a lot of learners on jobs that sort of would have normally been taken by the guys flowing in from New Zealand, and a lot of contractors sort of didn't have much choice but to put on learners. So you sort of look, and if you go back to about 2015, 16, there was sort of around about 25 people going into the shearing full time in South Australia, and roughly about the same in Victoria. And you know, after the last couple of years, with people actually getting the opportunity, and I think telling their friends, you know, oh, we've we've got a job and we're staying on stands, etc. So this year we're pretty proud. You know, we put 139 people in 2022 shearing full time over those two states. The retention rates are so good now with funding from. Australian Wool Innovations enabled us to go and follow those students up. So we go and help them along the way with their journey and create a pathway for them to become better and better by giving them extra training for the first three or four months. And that's really helped with retention rates going up. was around about 30% to now roughly about 70%, which is just it's phenomenal, really. Is the demand coming from more people wanting to do it or that they just need more shearers so there's more opportunity? Yeah, there's more opportunity, I think, and it's definitely more interest. I mean, for for instance, for 2023, we normally have a program, a set program that we do every year where there's at least one learner shearing school a month that goes for one week. So the the first one that we've got at Willaluka, we've had to add another one in there because we've just got too many people with their names down. The same over in Victoria, like uh, the first four schools are full for the year. And, you know, at Dookie and Bendigo, we've had to throw in two extra schools there and we're probably going to have to put a third one at Dookie because we can only take 10 people there and we've actually got around 28 on the list as it is. And that's not until March. And is there any sign of that demand slowing up? No, I don't think so. I, I can't honestly see it slipping away for the next few years, really, because the stock prices are good and there's so many lambs and stuff that get shorn nowadays. It makes the job a lot easier when you get shown it, shear a few grown sheep and then shear a few lambs. A lot easier on the body and, and with the numbers increasing through New South Wales coming out of the drought and Queensland, etc. Yeah, I, I can't see those numbers going down, to be honest, at least for another couple of years, which is, again, really positive for the industry. 
So it's the most interest you've had in quite a number of years. Yeah, going back a couple of years, we did have a real spike in interest. I think because in COVID, agriculture was essential. There was seen to be a lot of people, everything from plane pilot, a lot of tradies, etc., that their job wasn't essential, sort of come along to the schools. And we did have a real influx there. Yeah, there's just a lot of people that are coming straight out of school are actually looking at it as a really good opportunity for a career to go into versus before it probably was, you know, there wasn't that many people straight coming out of school going into it. But yeah, it's really, really positive for the industry. And you know, a lot of wool classes are the same. Uh, we sort of run off our feet with wool classing students at the moment too and having to throw extra schools in and extra classes in in different areas across the state. And who are the types of people taking this training? Yeah, it's a funny old story, that one, Elsie. There's everything from sort of farmhands looking to upskill and they want to go out and do a bit of stuff when they've got days off or they might have a bit of spare time, lads, because it's such good money, especially at the moment, and they start jumping in there. And then you've got... We're getting a lot of people that have done trades that are looking to swap to go and do something else. And they might have finished a carpentry trade, mechanic. We've got one young engineer just from Narracourt. He's finished his boilermaker and done his sitting and turning, and he's off to Willaluka to have a go. And so coming from sort of all different areas, a lot of the girls, I don't know why it is, but we seem to get a lot of hairdressers that finish that apprenticeship and then want to become shearers. Glenn Haynes from Shearing Contractors Association of Australia. Many are being enticed into the industry with promises of good money and opportunities for travel, both around the country and internationally. Max Gogol is a young shearer from the state who started out when he was 17, straight out of high school. Now 20, he says going into shearing was a great decision. Yeah, I love shearing. Yeah, it's hard work, but there's a big reward at the end of it, kind of, because it it pays well, and I like working hard. I can shear for 12 months a year now, all all year round. So around home, around Karunda, I shear for about nine months a year, and then the other three months a year, I'm either over in Victoria, or at the moment, I'm in Tasmania, or Kangaroo Island. I'm clearing about 800 to $1,000 a day. Five, Five grand a week's pretty good money, yeah very good money. You know, is this the long-term plan for you? You wouldn't want to be anything other than a shearer? Well, I actually would like to get into shearing instructing. So hopefully when my, if my body starts playing up a bit and I can't shear forever because you can't. You'd recommend it to other, other people to get into shearing? Yeah, well, I'd love, I'd definitely recommend it if you're, even if you're not from an agricultural background, you don't need to know anything about shearing, really. At your first learner school, you just need to rock up and have an open mind and willing to, to try it. Is the makeup of, you know, your fellow shearers changing? Is it who you'd expect? The reputation of shearers is definitely improved. There used to be a bad reputation that a lot of them would put put it all in, in bets and alcohol and stuff and spend it all. But now all these young shearers are saving it and buying houses at the age of 20 and brand new cars at 20 and 21, like myself. Yeah, right. So you think it's becoming a bit more professional? Yeah. Well, professional is the exact word, yeah. Shearers are, a lot, are getting a lot more professional because you can represent your state and your country in shearing and you get to practice every day. Yeah, that's Shearer Max Gogol sharing somewhere in Tasmania, maybe listening to us at the moment. Good on you, Max. Speaking with Elsie Adama, and we also heard from Glenn Haynes from Shearing Contractors Association of Australia, talking about the indications there will be more than enough new recruits for shearers to pick up the slack of the shortage of shearers in years to come. 
We will talk to a country music guy from the northwest who has family ties to the Tamworth Music Festival in just a moment. Look who's returning in 2023. Are you ready? G'day, it's Leon Compton. Back on air next Monday. Where are we at? Talking about the stories that matter to you. In terms of carbon emissions, inputs versus outputs. Getting reaction. Tasmanians had a gutful. And advice from hygiene. Please take a cold shower. To fishing. Croft, where are the fish biting this weekend? Leon Compton, back for morning. It's ready, it's waiting. Monday, 30th of January from 8.30. Can't miss it, come on down. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Been a long time since I've been to the Tamworth Country Music Festival, but uh, it's fantastic fantastic place to visit uh, this time of the year and the famous Tamworth Country Music Festival has just wrapped up its 50th year it just so happens this year has a bit of extra Tassie spirit involved Bernie-born musician Jacob Vincent was born with country music in his blood his late grandfather a member of Lilydale's best export in the 50s the singing kettles do you remember the singing kettles yeah Jacob played the opening concert of the famous festival this year and our reporter Madeleine Rojan caught up with him to hear his story about himself and also the family. How you doing? The entire city becomes somewhere where people are performing. You get sort of eight to 10,000 people in the park. You walk out, they, they go back as far as the eye can see, so mm-hmm. that's pretty special. Your grandfather was part of quite a renowned country music band, Lilydale's mm-hmm. Best Exports, some may say. Um, but, yeah, tell me a little bit about your grandfather and and what your connection is to him. Yeah, well, in the, the end of the, well, the mid-60s, I guess, my grandfather and his two brothers were in a band called The Singing Kettles that came out of Lilydale. And, so ring your bell, bell birds, your and from pretty young age, they were sort of doing three-part harmonies, lots of Slim Dusty covers and Hank Williams and just good sort of older-style country music. And then when um, when Tamworth started to become the country music capital, they, um, they uprooted themselves and, and moved to, to Tamworth. And there was a couple of tours they did over to, to Vietnam with, with like Tasmanian groups to entertain troops over there during the war. But I think there's a few sort of conspiracy theories that sort of out of that with the um, the Agent Orange spray and everything, it really worsened his his asthma. And within about two years of moving to Tamworth, he um, he passed away. He was only 21. But the, um, the other two brothers kept going and, and played around, especially Sydney and, and Tasmania for um, the next sort of 25, 30 years, put out 20-odd albums and uh, ended up in the uh, the role of renown in uh, in Tamworth here, which is really the, the country music um, hall of fame in, in, in Australia. Yeah, wow. And um, so does not having been able to meet your grandfather does that make country music hit in a bit of a different way and has it increased your desire to perform it at all oh definitely i think 
Music was always a bit of a, a funny thing in our house, I think, growing up. Like, it was always appreciated and there was guitars around. But I think for Dad, like, especially, he was only a year old when his father passed. So not, you know, still having a, a great loving family around him. But, you know, in a, in a different lifetime, things might have gone differently. And it, it would have been a, a career for him, I think. Because he um, he paid his way through uni, playing in gigs, um, sort of in Hobart. He he was in uh, in attendance down at Chain Franklin at UTAS for a while, and I think there was many a uh, tequila fueled night playing to the uh, the dinner crowd, and then mm-hmm. whichever drunk stragglers were around after. But yeah, in terms of connecting and, and really desiring to, to chase it, I think yeah, it is it is a connection to someone that you didn't know and and honestly you don't you don't really besides a few stories you don't really know what their nature was was like and I think something that everyone can find comfort in you know spending time with their their relatives to just share a similar experience so I think it's a really strong I'd I'd call it a why why I'm doing it you know I feel like um the kettles had a lot a lot going on and a lot going right um, when things took a, um, a tragic tragic turn. So I guess I, I do see it as a little bit of unfinished business around here. And I really feel like maybe this is sort of what, what I was best suited to, to doing after not being, not being too sure for a while. Mm. But yeah, I was pretty lucky to get a bit of a country music education at an early age. It's a beautiful thing to have passed down through the generations. So do your family live in Tasmania at the moment? So, I mean, my my third grandfather, who, who adopted Dad really young, he's always been involved in the in the Lions Club in Alveston, and they still live at Turner's Beach. And um, Pop, on the other side, um, he was a, a milk tanker driver for a long, long time, you know, between Deloraine and Sheffield and all those places. And... Um, one of the songs on the first EP, Blackwood Road, was, was written about him, him selling the house. Um, and that's the road that he lived on, um, just outside of Alveston. I think you can, uh, you can take the boy out of Tassie, but you can't take Tassie out of the boy. No, you know, we, are, you know. we are one of a kind, I would say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been really amazing to... Um, to be in Tamworth this week and the amount of Tasmanians that are up here and, and supporting me, like, it's um, it's really great. They're still around and they're, yeah, they get, a, they get behind you like, like no one else does. This was in Chester's house It was my home Out on Blackwood Road Wake up when the rooster crows Tassie born country music singer Jacob Vincent speaking there with Madeline Roseanne. He's up in Tamworth, comes from Burnie, and uh, late grandfather, a uh, member of Lilydale's best export in the 50s, the Singing Kettles. Great story. Um, and plenty more stories too, by the way, on our ABC Rural Online portal, ABC Rural Online, and our ABC Rural Facebook page. That's our country hour for today. We'll catch you. After midday tomorrow.